Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Vigelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. The bread of heaven we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're working through Paul's second letter to his protege, Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. When Ephesus is a large city, a, a large world cultural urban center. And what we're really seeing here is Paul's final words to someone that he's trained and mentor in ministry and teaching him how to continue in faithful ministry, but also it's not just that, it's Paul's final words to the church, so it's for us as well. Paul writes this letter as he sits in prison in Rome for the second time, waiting to be executed because he would preach that Christ is Lord. In Rome at this time, you had to, to say that Caesar was Lord, but Paul preaches Christ is Lord, so he finds himself in prison awaiting execution. And he's at the end of his life sharing his last words of wisdom as he's waiting to die. So what we're seeing here in this opening chapter is what the world sees as weakness, Christianity actually knows is true power. Christianity is a radical lens to look at the world through. But ultimately, if we can actually see it, Christianity shows us the way to power is to serve, the way to receive is to give, and the way to life is actually through death. This next, this next section that we read of text shows us this, this same paradigm, the same thing. It shows us that the way for the gospel, that's the good news of, of salvation through Christ, the way for the gospel to continue into the second generation of the early church from Paul to Timothy is not to subdue culture or extort power over culture. Neither is it to fear it and shriek back and be cowardice, but to courageously suffer with confidence and hope. So just one thing this morning I have for you, I'll try to do this in two parts. 
um, that we'll look at. Um, there's a lot of themes here that we spent some time on last week and some that we'll look at next week, so I'm just going to try to give you one thing, but we'll see. Um, what Paul is telling Timothy here is this. He says, guard the deposit of the gospel by doing what? By sharing in its suffering. Look at verse 8. And that's our point this morning. Join in suffering. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering. I touched on this a little bit last week, but Timothy isn't really who you'd have as your first choice of pastor. He's born of a Jewish woman, later converted to Christianity, and a pagan, unbelieving father. Timothy's own body is weak. He has an extreme fear of man. He's afraid of people. He's a young man. And there's immense cultural pressure that he experiences as he ministers in a major cultural urban center in the world. And there has to be some doubt in his heart. You have to believe this. There has to be some doubt in his heart that he actually can't live up to the legacy of his mentor. So you also have to see this, that Paul, I said this last week, but Paul is a Roman criminal now which is not a very good legacy to be connected to, right? Most Jews at this time as well would have seen Christianity as nothing more than a a religion that's about a blasphemed prophet who was executed for his crimes and got what he deserved. Pagans would have seen Christians just as some fanatical subculture. And Timothy's ministering in the midst of this tension. But despite all of these factors, Paul exhorts Timothy, do not be ashamed, but share in suffering. What does he mean? Two things. First, do not be ashamed. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, shame holds us back from from being who we're supposed to be in the same way that our vices hold us back from who we're supposed to be. What does he mean by that? Let me explain. He says that shame introduces both doubt and fear into our hearts. Shame says to us, you're not enough. You're not worthy. So because of shame and ultimately fear, we believe that we're disappointing ourselves, we're disappointing others. We hold back from stepping out in courage despite our doubts and fears to be who we were really meant to be. We're held back by it. But the gospel, however, says that love casts out fear, because love looks upon the beloved despite the beloved's doubts and fears about who they are and who they're, who they're not being. Do you see that? Let me explain what I, what I mean with an example. Marriage is filled with and a cycle of shame and weakness. One person works and works either inside the home, outside the home, because They feel like they can't be seen as weak in front of the other person. This makes them feel like they're never enough. You're never able to do enough. You're never able to impress the other person, no matter how much they do. And they're afraid that if they're not pulling their weights, the other person is going to pull away or ultimately be disappointed with them. The other person, the other spouse, is in the exact same cycle and projects onto their spouse as acting out their very worst fears. We'll reason, we say in our minds, they're going to pull away from me. 
If something about me doesn't change, I know I'm overworking and they're upset about it. I know that I'm not being who I'm supposed to be, so they're going to pull away from me. I can feel the disappointment, but I'm working so, so hard to make it go away. You see that? The point is this, is that we know we're not who we're supposed to be. And there's nowhere else to find this out so quickly as to get married to someone. So what's the solution? Here's the solution. It's not vague apologies. It's this. It's to look upon one another in love, despite one another's failures. It's actually to live out your love toward one another, despite the other person not being who they're supposed to be. Let me explain what I mean by this. Someone has to say, one spouse has to say, I'm not leaving you despite your failures. I'm not leaving you despite you not being who you are, who you're supposed to be. I'm not leaving you despite you believing there's something wrong with you. I know you think something's wrong with you, but I'm not going anywhere despite what you're not and what you think is wrong with you. I know that you do wrong. I know you don't live up to your own expectations about yourself. I love you and I forgive you despite who you are not. Not who you are, who you are not. That, friends, is love. You see that? This is, that's the gospel coming to bear in, the pa- in, in power in marriage. It restores honor. It says, I honor you by choosing you. It restores power. It says, let me help you with the emotional load and the workload that you carry, and let me listen to you. It restores innocence. It says, I forgive you despite who you're not and who you are, because ultimately I know deep down I'm guilty of the exact same things as you are. You see how the gospel frees us and is the lens through which we can see health in marriage restored when we don't look at what we think we ultimately deserve, but see the person we've committed to love and we move towards them. And we live out our love by moving towards another who's ultimately, we know, not that different from us. You see, we are so guilt and shame driven in our society that we think that we can actually gain moral high ground by just catching other people being who they're not, who, not being who they're supposed to be. And we think that when we catch people being, not being who they're supposed to be, that we can extort power over them. But the gospel says this. It says, deep down, I know I'm not who I'm supposed to be either. Luther called this being a theologian of the cross. Which means that the cross shows you deep down, you were so utterly helpless on your own that Jesus had to come and die for you because you couldn't do it on your own. You couldn't, you couldn't satisfy God's justice on your own. He had to send someone to do it for you. That's how utterly helpless you were. That humbles us. It also shows us how infinitely valuable to God we are that, he was, that we're so valuable to him that he was willing to come and die for us. That empowers us. And both of these free us to see others, to see the other as infinitely worthy of love because ultimately we know what is true of them is true of us as well. You see, fear of not being enough, it holds us back from stepping out and living out love like this. But Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed. 
Don't be afraid of who you can't be. None of us can be who we should be, but through, look at verse 8 again, the gospel by the power of God, His love and power breaks through our fear. It breaks through our shame and our guilt despite us not being who we should be. So we, cannot be, so we, can, we can be not ashamed, but we can be confident. Not in ourselves, but in God's power and love. Breaking through despite ourselves. And we can speak that love to others. That's a gospel lens. Second thing. Paul says, share in suffering. Now, modern Western people are more averse to pain and suffering than any society in history, are we not? We avoid suffering at nearly all costs. Why? Two reasons. First, we become disenchanted with our own mortality. Second, deep down, we're actually moralistic, and we think that we've done enough good in our lives not to deserve to have to suffer. So first, I touched on this a little bit last week, Um, so I, I won't say everything, but just quickly, modern society distances us from death. Here's my, here's, here's an example. My wife hates when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I say when I die, I want an open casket because I need the people in my life to look at me in the dead face and know I'm gone. He's not here anymore. And I want them to know, ultimately, I want them to know that they're going to die too. And my wife gets upset because she's like, I don't want to see you like that. And then I'm like, well, why am I going to die first, right? <laughs> We're distanced from our, own, from, from our deaths more than any other society in history because we're unable to accept the reality that suffering and death are actually inevitable parts of life. We have too many conveniences keeping us from it. And let's be honest, death is actually inconvenient. And we have too many conveniences that we could just tap into to get away from it. I'll never forget one time I was, I was driving a, a woman to the airport so she could go to her aunt's funeral, and she said something that just, that's describing this. I asked her, you know, how are you, how are you doing? How are you taking it? Um, and she said, oh, this came at the most convenient time for me. And I was like, I hope that's true for your aunt. <laughs> so so here's, here's the reality. One of the best things that you can do for yourself is actually accept that you will suffer and that you will die. And it will not be convenient for you or anyone in your life. And when you do this, you can actually move on to the better existential conundrum that I know is already hopefully coming to the surface of your mind, which is how are you going to face those things? It's inevitable. How are you going to face them? See, in ancient times, suffering and death are right in your face. People suffered profoundly with little to no relief, and it was communally known. Paul himself suffered greatly. This is a parallel passage to Romans chapter 8, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul describes the sufferings that he's experienced. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. He'd been beaten. He'd been put in prison. He'd been bit by a snake, so on. Paul has experienced profound suffering, like I said last week, after he became a Christian. Before he became a Christian, his life was relatively easy. After he comes to know Jesus, his life gets profoundly more difficult. Why? There's something we need to learn from him. Because he says to Timothy, join me in suffering. But not just Paul. Notice, this is the key here. 
Join in the suffering. Join in suffering with Jesus. Look at verse 10. And which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life through the gospel. You see, the key to joining in suffering is to see the one who suffered for us. We can suffer if we can see one suffered for us. And see that through Jesus' suffering and death, ultimately comes life. Because he abolished death. Because he overcame its power. Death could not hold him. Death no longer has power because Jesus battled it and brought the death of death. And through it ultimately comes life. His life, a life that we now share in. And we can have a sure hope that through our death ultimately will come life because Jesus has battled death and overcome it. And that hope has a profound impact. If we can have that vision for the end of our life, this is what Tim Keller says, if we can have that vision for the end of our life, it will have a profound impact upon how we approach pain and suffering today. What you believe about the end has an impact on how you can live today. Tolkien gives us this analogy through one of Frodo's dreams at the beginning of Fellowship. Tolkien wrote this. He says, Frodo, this is when he's in the house of Tom Bombadil. If you're like, who's Tom Bombadil in Lord of the Rings? You need to go read the books, okay? Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver until at last it was all rolled back and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. A far green country. If we can see that death is abolished in Christ, as it says right here, it is now ultimately a portal into new life. It means if you have that view of the end, you can endure anything today. Because ultimately, what do we know? We know that our suffering will all be undone. How? Because through immense suffering and death, look at verse 10, Jesus brings life and what? Immortality. Green country. Frodo's dream is at the beginning of the journey that Tolkien, that Tolkien uh, describes. It's at the beginning of his journey. And what Tolkien picks up on is that confidence and hope in the resurrection life through Jesus can project you through anything, through the very gates of Mordor, through anything even with great joy because what you believe will happen in the end has a profound impact on how you can handle the suffering and the pain of today. Some of you need to see this here, and it's important. Look at verse 9. And he saved us, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Some of you need to see this. Some of you think your life is working out great. Your suffering is minimal because you've done everything right, and God is so pleased with you. And that heaven is a consolation prize for all the good that you've done in your life. What you need to see is Jesus ultimately abolished death because he abolishes the need first to fulfill the law perfectly. And heaven is not a consolation prize for good people. It's actually the material restoration of all things through the power of God. In other words, Jesus did what no one is able to do. And we all know this. We all know this in our hearts. We all say no one's perfect. We all know this. Jesus did what no one can do. And he erases the need to prove to God that you're worthy of his love. 
And it's only by his power and grace that Jesus is coming to make all things new. But you think that God should reward you when you do good for him. Look at verse 8 again. Paul says, not, not that he is a Roman prisoner. Who's he a prisoner of? He's a prisoner of Christ. Paul does so many things right in his life. And look at what the will of God had for him. Profound suffering. You need to see that your suffering or not does not correlate to God's being pleased with you. Just look at the life of Joseph or Job or Paul, but better yet, look at the life of Jesus who suffers immensely, but through him comes life because verse 9, his purpose is greater than anything we could ever have conceived of. God's very own son suffers profoundly, a son who God is well pleased in. Your suffering is not correlated to your works. Your suffering is correlated to God's eternal plan for you beyond what you could ever conceive of. And some of you need to hear something else, that God is not punishing you because he's upset with you. If, you're going, if we're going to understand suffering and death, we have to see that we need an infinite God, powerful enough to not only handle our anger and grief, but to turn our suffering and death into more than we could ever imagine. To awaken our imagination to more than we could ever hope and to see that hope come in real history. In real history. In a real person. Look at verse 10. This power and love has been made manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Some of you need to see the real power of God in the world. That through Jesus, who can, He can give you a real hope despite anything that you experience in this life. And your suffering is not meaningless because there's something in the end. There's a green pasture for you. There's some purpose behind the suffering that you experience, but we have to be able to look beyond ourselves and look to something else. We have to see Jesus. What we must see is that we can join in suffering because there was one who joined in our suffering by taking our place in a death that we ultimately deserve. And he transformed death from a curse into a portal. A portal into life and immortality. If we can see this, we can walk through any pain and suffering. Somehow we can walk through any pain and suffering. Because Christianity says that your suffering ultimately is not meaningless, but it will be redeemed. Your wounded body and mind, it will be resurrected. Materially resurrected. Everything sad will be untrue. It's not for nothing. And you'll see not white shores, but you'll see Jesus. And you'll see golden streets. And you'll see many mansions. And join ultimately in the very life of the triune God through your death. And Paul says suffering is not even worth comparing to that glory that awaits a Christian. How can he say that? You must imagine what awaits on the other side. That's why he can. From a jail cell awaiting death by his own country, Paul's a Roman Roman citizen, why Paul can say, join in suffering. Because here's, here's the key. I'm going to get to this more next week. The suffering is actually the glory. And there's glory that also awaits you. So what's the key to guarding the deposit of the gospel? It's knowing that you, you friend, are God's deposit who guarded you from death in Christ. Matthew 13, the kingdom of God is like treasure that a man buries in a field and gives everything he has to buy that field, and it's his greatest joy to do so. 
Right? You were put in a field, look at verse 9, before all ages. And He came in the fullness of time to reveal to us the fullness of His love through the person of Jesus. So how are you going to suffer and die and face this existential crisis in your life? The Christian says ultimately how? With confidence. Not in myself, not in my works, not in my reason, but in Christ who suffered and died for me. And by His power, I will have life and I will have immortality. And it's according to His own purposes and by God's grace and verse 14, by His Holy Spirit that dwells in you, that He will guard the deposits the good news of salvation through Christ, it will endure in you and through you and also in the church through all ages. How does the Christian join in suffering? With gladness. They're just moments away from encountering the very life of God. Through Jesus, who gives his whole self for his own bride to present her as beautiful. It's with great joy that he gave himself to purchase the deposit that he loves, friends. We need to see Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for showing us the fullness of your love in Christ. A love that's not conceptual, it's not ethereal, it's real, it's come to us in history, manifest to us in in a person, in a person that is Jesus, your own Son. I pray that as we see the suffering of Christ, that we would see that You are turning our own suffering somehow toward Your purposes by redeeming it. And ultimately, we can can go to suffering and pain and ultimately death because we see how You endured suffering for us. We see how You conquered death for us. You will put everything to right and make all things new through Christ. Give us a great confidence to face anything today, O Lord. Give us a great hope and anchor it in our hearts. In Christ's name, we ask this. Amen.